Podcast pals from WHYY and BillyPenn.com. It is hitting season. I'm your host, John Stolness from The Good Fight. You can follow me on Twitter at John Stolness. And coming up, we're going to talk about this Phillies Brave series. We only have one game to talk about right now after the game on Wednesday night got rained out. They'll play one more on Thursday afternoon. But joining me to talk about the Braves and the National League East and the rest of the National League a little bit and to give us his perspective on what he has seen from the Phillies so far this year is Chris Willis, good buddy of the podcast. He's from the SB Nation Brave site Battery Power. He's going to join me to talk about all that. Plus, Bryce Harper's power outage. What's going on there? And I'll take a look back at one of my favorite Phillies games of all time, 20 years later. Just a phenomenal game from 2003 that I wrote about for The Good Fight this week. All that coming up here on this edition of Hit and Season. But uh, real quick, let's talk about this Phil's Brave series. And like I said, not a lot to talk about as the Phillies welcomed Atlanta to Philadelphia for this three-game series. The game on Wednesday night got rained out. Um, Really kind of... uh, (laughs) unfair to the people who were in attendance they just kept saying it'll be 7:15. it was supposed to be 6 40 and then from like 7 15 until like the nine o'clock hour they just didn't give any updates at all and you had people sitting at the stadium wondering what's going on what, what's happening with the game and so i don't know if we'll ever get a real explanation as to the delay in the decision making or at the very least if you don't know whether or not you're going to get the game in to at least continue to give updates and say we're continuing to watch the weather we're we're seeing there might be a window but we're not sure Uh, We'll let you know as soon as possible, but there was just no communication, at least online, that we could see, and the the, the beat writers were saying on Twitter that there was no notification being given, that nobody had any idea where things stood in the rainouts. That's just not the right way to handle that kind of thing, you know? People drove all the way to the game. They went there. They expected to see a baseball game, and you can't help the rain. You can't help that. You can't help a game getting rained out, but what you can do is give people information. I hope people in the stadium were more were better informed than it seems like they were from somebody sitting uh, in his office a hundred and a couple hundred miles away, but uh, didn't seem to be the case on Wednesday night. Nevertheless, uh, this will now be just a two-game series with the final game of the series coming on Thursday. Uh, the Wednesday night game will be made up as part of a doubleheader on September 11th, and that will be the next time these two teams play each other after this series. Uh, will be in September when the Braves come back to Citizens Bank Park. So let's talk a little bit about Tuesday night's 4-2 loss. A disappointing loss, a lot of remnants of the issues and the frustrations that we saw in the month of May. The Phillies pounded out 11 hits and scored just two runs in that loss on Tuesday. And that's because 10 of those 11 hits were singles. Now they got eight hits off of Spencer Strider. And Strider, his numbers are not very good this year. He's got an ERA in the high threes, but he looked like a guy who could get a strikeout whenever he wanted in that game. Uh, He struck out nine Phillies hitters and did not walk a batter, uh, but he did give up those eight hits. But he had his fastball going at 98 miles an hour, and it seemed like every time the Phillies got a couple of guys on, he was able to find a strikeout. And so those runner in scoring position woes surfaced yet again. They were one for 12 with runners in scoring position. 
in the game on Tuesday. You also had JT Realmuto make a boneheaded base running gaffe. That's an issue that happened a lot in April. We haven't seen a whole lot of that over the last couple of months, but JT Realmuto in the eighth inning with two outs and a runner on trying to stretch a single into a double when they're down by three runs and got thrown out at second base and prevented the tying run from coming to the plate in that situation. Just a boneheaded play that a very smart baseball player like JT Realmuto cannot make, and he knows he cannot make that, but it it it, it cost the Phillies their last potential shot uh, to tie the game. Actually, now they did get the tying run to the plate in the bottom of the ninth with Kyle Schwarber coming to the plate. A runner was on with two outs, but he struck out against Rysel Iglesias to end the ball game, and the Phillies fell 4-2. to two. A lot of conversation about Rob Thompson's decision-making with bullpen usage in this one. And I will be the first to admit it was not conducive to actually winning an important baseball game. Ranger Suarez was outstanding. He went six innings, uh, gave up four hits, seven strikeouts, two walks, just allowed a solo home run to Austin Riley. Uh, He was phenomenal. Yet again, Suarez has been on a roll. But uh, the Phillies needed to cover three innings after Suarez left, and they turned to Jeff Hoffman, Andrew Vasquez, and uh, and and uh, Dylan Covey. Now, Hoffman and Vasquez have been very good this year, but there are some more high-leverage guys that you would have thought the Phillies would have brought in in that situation. After the game, Rob Thompson said that Matt Strom, Jose Alvarado, and Junior Marte were all unavailable due to workload, apparently um, having pitched in three of the last four games, but there was also an off day uh, on Monday, so it really just, to me, didn't make a whole lot of sense that some of these guys were not available. I mean, that was some Joe Girardi-level stuff right there. And how do you not have those guys available for a series as important as this Brave series? This is the team in first place in your division. You trail by eight games. And with fewer games against divisional opponents because of the new balanced schedule, you have to take advantage of every single one of these games. And it just seemed like the Phillies, once they got down uh, three to one in this game, they just punted. They just said, ah, we're done. Or even once once the Braves tied it up. They, they, I mean, I, I like what Hoffman gives this team. I like what Vasquez has given this team. They've both been very good, but Hoffman gave up a run and Vasquez gave up two runs. And they're just not, they are not the seventh and eighth inning guys in a mid-June game against the Atlanta Braves if you really want to try and get back into the divisional race. That was some Joe Girardi level stuff there from Rob Thompson. I think he was overly cautious with those bullpen guys. I think Craig Kimbrell should have gotten in this game in the seventh or eighth inning. Because remember, we're not strictly using closers, right? We're not saving Kimbrell for a ninth inning that wasn't going to happen. So it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And there was something uh, that I saw on Phillies Nation, and I don't remember who wrote this, but it was a, a good point that they made. There is absolutely no excuse for Dylan Covey to be on this team right now and for Connor Brogdon and or Andrew Bellotti to be pitching in AAA. There's just no reason for it. Both of those guys were impact relievers in the bullpen in the playoffs last year. They were guys you came into this season thinking would pitch this exact situation. And they're in AAA, and you've got unproven guys like Hoffman and Dylan Covey getting these moments. That should have been Connor Brogdon out there in the seventh inning. And I'm not going to argue Andrew Vasquez. He's been a very, very good left-handed reliever. 
for the Phillies. I would I didn't have a big problem using Vasquez in that spot if Jose Alvarado and Matt Strom and Gregory Soto were all available. But where was Gregory Soto? Why does Gregory Soto not get that inning? Right? Why does Craig Kimbrell not get that inning? It just they went into a game against the Atlanta Braves down three relievers against the divisional opponent who's leading the division, the five-time defending NL East champs. This is a series you have marked on your calendar to make up some ground, and you don't have three of your best relievers with Sir Anthony Dominguez on the injured list. They're, they're not available. You don't make a move before the game to bring up a guy like Connor Brogdon or Andrew Bellotti so you can keep Dylan Covey in the bullpen. Dylan Covey, who, who never pitches except in losing situations anyway, this just doesn't make any sense. It's bad roster management. I think it, I think the Phillies got caught off guard here. I don't know what it is they were thinking with Dylan Covey here. They think he's going to be a bulk guy. With Chris Sanchez now in the rotation, you don't need Dylan Covey. He stinks. Connor Brogdon or Andrew Bellotti should be in this bullpen for situations like this. And that's not to say that one of those guys wouldn't have given up a run or two because it's entirely possible they would have, but they at least have a track record. I'm not comfortable with Jeff Hoffman in that spot. I don't care how well he's pitched this year. That's not a spot for Jeff Hoffman. And you could argue Gregory Soto should have gotten that inning over Andrew Vasquez. Gregory Soto is an experienced closer in this league. He's a little volatile, but that's the guy you want in that spot if Jose Alvarado can't go. And it still seems silly to me that Strom and Alvarado and Junior Marte all were unavailable due to workload here in mid-June after an off day the day before. That's just not that's just not acceptable. Uh, and it really ruined a great pitcher's duel between two really contrasting styles in Ranger Suarez and Spencer Strider. Both these guys were outstanding, and they just did it in such different ways. You've got Strider, the young right-hander who gets guys out with power, and then in Suarez, the left-hander who mixes in breaking pitches, has to hit the corners, just paints the ball beautifully up, down, in, out, fastball, off speed. He had the best offense in baseball guessing all night long. 29 of Ranger Suarez's last 33 innings have been scoreless. And he has a 1.38 ERA over his last five starts against the Mets, the Nationals, the Dodgers, the Diamondbacks, and the Braves. Those are three very good lineups that he faced against the Dodgers, Diamondbacks, and Braves. Opponents are now hitting 214 against him with a 584 OPS in his last five starts. And John Clark note, noted that he's given up uh, one earned run or less and gone at least six innings in four straight starts for the first time in his career. And he now has three straight starts with seven or more strikeouts, which is a career high. This is what I thought we were going to get from Ranger Suarez from the start of the season. When I predicted that he would be an all-star, I felt like, and you've heard me say this before, so this is not 2020 hindsight, that second half run and his performance in the postseason proved to me he could be a well above average big league pitcher. And right now, I think you'd have to call him this team's co-ace. He has stepped into the role that we were expecting Aaron Nola to play, to be that shutdown guy, to be the guy who can go six innings and give up one earned run or less. Right now, Ranger Suarez is the number two on this team, and it's not even close. So this is what I predicted, as this is what I thought we would get. 
He's not going to make the all-star team. It's probably too late for that to happen. But this is what I was talking about. And right now, he is pitching like a co-ace of this team. Now, one of the big topics of conversation after the game on Tuesday was Bryce Harper's power outage. You've heard me talk about this a couple of times over the last few podcasts, and the power outage has continued, but we saw Todd Zalecki write about it, Matt Gelb wrote about it, because Bryce Harper talked about it after the game. He is still stuck at three home runs on the season. Now, I was fortunate fortunate enough to see his first home run back from the injured list against the Red Sox a, a few weeks ago, but he is stuck on three has not hit a home run in his last 22 games. That is the third longest streak of his career. And he has just one home run in his last 32 games, the fewest in that length of time since his rookie season. Now, I mentioned Gelb wrote a piece in The Athletic about this on Tuesday, and he noted that one of the the issues is that Harper is seeing fewer fastballs this year than he ever has before. Now, I'm sure there are things going on with Harper's swing that Kevin Long will address and that if you had swing mechanics breaking it down, they could probably tell you he's you know, maybe dropping his shoulder or he's not dropping it enough or his swing plane is off so that he's not able to lift the ball, whatever the reason is with his swing. He's also seeing fewer fastball this, fastballs this year than he ever has before. His career average is 50.9%. Throughout his career, he's seen about half the pitches he's seen have been fastballs. Last year, it was only 45%, and that was the fewest he'd ever seen in a season before. But this year, it's down from 45% to 38.3%. So career number of near 51% down to 38% is a huge drop in fastballs. Pitchers are just not throwing him heaters. And he's seen a big uptick in the number of sliders that he's seen, from 18% a year ago to 26% this year has also been a 1% increase in curveball. So just seeing a lot more junk this year. And those pitches are harder to hit out because hitting number four in the lineup, I don't think he has quite as much protection behind him. And I'm, I'm not the biggest guy on lineup protection necessarily, but they can kind of pitch around Bryce Harper right now. And he has yet to find his power stroke on breaking balls. He's also not hitting fastballs out of the yard either, but just seeing far fewer fastballs, so maybe he's in between a little bit more, but he's still hitting the ball hard. The exit velocity is the same. His line drive percentage of 27% is a career high. The problem is that his launch angle and his fly ball rate are way down. Fly ball rate of 28.9% is by far a career low, and his launch angle of 7.3 degrees this year is down from 11.8 a year ago and 13.3 two years ago. Meanwhile, his ground ball rate of 43.9% is a career high, slightly up from last year's 41.5%. Now, to his credit, I will say that I think Bryce Harper's attitude and his approach to dealing with this power outage is the right one. Making the point he doesn't want to try to hit home runs. If he goes up to the plate and he starts trying to lift the ball, all you're going to see from Bryce Harper are pop-ups and flyouts and strikeouts. That's all you're going to see. So Bryce Harper is right that he just wants to keep hitting the ball hard because he's in a power slump, but to be clear, he isn't slumping overall. On the season, he's hitting 301 with a 393 on base percentage. Now, his slugging percentage during this homerless drought is under 300, and that's certainly not what you would expect, but he still has an 817 OPS on the season. His walk rate and his strikeout rates are right on target. Everything else about him is good. Right, he's, he's had a number of multi-hit games in recent weeks, but it's a lot of singles, right? A lot of singles from Bryce Harper. And that, of course, is not what you're expecting from your cleanup hitter. But again, 
As we've said over and over again, he could be dealing with issues with his elbow. I don't know that his elbow is 100% coming off of Tommy John surgery. Maybe he's dealing with something there that's causing him to, ha- to, to change the way he swings. Maybe the swing's not as violent. Maybe that's taking away from his uppercut a little bit. I don't know. You can bet Kevin Long and Bryce Harper are looking at video or somebody's checking out the swing to see what's going on. I know Harper sometimes doesn't want any of that information. He just wants to go up there. He wants to see the ball and he wants to swing. And that's that, you know, that that's what works for him. So that's great. I I and I don't as if I'm not overly concerned about the homerless drought. If he if he didn't, if he hadn't come back two months early from Tommy John surgery, yes, I'd be fussing about this. But he's also being productive in other ways. He's hitting a lot of balls hard. He's getting a lot of hits. He's getting on base. He's getting some clutch RBIs. You would like to see those power numbers go up, and and so would he. But he is right not to try and artificially change things to elevate the ball and hit more home runs because all that's going to mean are infield flies and lazy flyouts to the outfield. You don't want that. We want him hitting the ball hard. And if eventually he is going to get his power back, it, it is going to come back. There's no doubt in my mind about that. So that is the state of the Phillies here after just one game in this Phillies Brave series. Well, this Braves team that we are fighting here uh, this week, again, it's going to be a, a shortened uh, two-game series because of the rain out on Wednesday night. But uh, we're getting a glimpse. We haven't seen much of the Braves this year because of the uh, the rebalance or the balance schedule. So uh, this series is actually the last time the Phillies will p- will play the Braves until September. So not a lot of not a lot of games to make up ground. The chasm that exists between these two teams. But so we really haven't gotten a chance to see this team all that much. And joining me to talk a little bit more about the Braves is our good friend of the podcast, Chris Willis. You know him from the Battery Power website, SB Nation's Brave site. You can follow him on Twitter at Chris underscore Willis. Chris, thanks for coming back on Hitting Season again. How are you, buddy? Hey, I'm doing good. I appreciate you having me. Oh, it's always good to talk to you. Nobody better to talk to about the Braves, I think. And this has obviously been a great season from your perspective, from Atlanta's perspective. I wasn't so sure the Braves would be able to pick up where they left off from last year. I felt like losing Dansby Swanson, maybe they would take a little bit of a step back, but they haven't. It's amazing to me that they're doing this with some of the injuries in the rotation that they're having. We'll get to that in just a second here. Um, But uh, just generally speaking, are you surprised by how good Atlanta has been the season i mean maybe that's a dumb question of the five time to ask of somebody who follows the defending five-time division champs um i think it is a little surprising um you know you mentioned dansby swanson i think you know all of us uh kind of expected a little bit of a step back there and it was a it was a bit of a surprise when they opted to go with orlando arcia and i mean he's went out and put up uh arguably his best well not arguably it is his best season of his career um, you know, he's, uh, he's probably, I know he's leading all-star voting, uh, at shortstop, but he probably deserves to be leading uh, all-star voting, which is, you know, something I never thought I'd be saying, but you know, it <laughs> yeah. was just like, um, with this team, they touted their depth, you know, all the way through the off season, all the way through the spring. And I think it has shown up because they've dealt with a number of injuries and, uh, have just been able to just keep plugging along. And, um, you know, and I, I mean, they're 21 games over 500 right now. Uh, you know, and, and Max Freed's, you know, has made, I think five starts. So, you know, I mean, yeah. if you'd told me that back in April, you know, I'd have been, I'd been really surprised. 
Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about the offense in just a minute because the, the, they are pounding the ball like no other team in Major League Baseball is this year, except maybe the Texas Rangers. It's it's close. They, they, the two teams have been maybe the two best offensive teams in baseball this year. But I really do think it's incredible what the Braves are doing when you consider Max Freed, like you mentioned, has only made five starts. Kyle Wright has been on the injured list all season long. These are two of their very best pitchers, uh, two of your very, very best guys who haven't really pitched at all this season. And, you know, the Phillies have had their fair share of, of success with some young guys. Ranger Suarez has has turned out to be a very good starting pitcher at the major league level. But it just seems like you guys churn out one really good young pitcher after another. And this year, it's Bryce Elder, who's who's jumped in 14 starts at 2.60 ERA. We all know how good Spencer Strider is. And I, I haven't really been keeping super close times on Strider. So it was kind of surprising to see a 3.93 ERA from him. But uh, you've got a young guy named Jared Schuster, who... I know the number the the four five seven ERA doesn't doesn't look so hot, but um, you know he's uh, he's come up and he's uh, he's he's given you guys some starts too. Talk a little bit about some of these uh, some of these surprise guys who have managed to pick up the slack. How are they doing it? I mean, Bryce Elder, you know he got a he got a, a little bit of run last season early. Um, you know, struggled, went back down to the minors, but finished the season really strong. And, um, you know, and I don't think, I think we overlooked him a little bit. I mean, even in the spring, he got sent down to minor league camp really early in, in, uh, with about three weeks to go and actually began the season at AAA. But I mean, when, you know, when you look at this rotation, I don't think there's anybody that's been bigger than what Bryce Elder's uh, done. I mean, he goes out there, he's not overpowering, hits his spots, got a lot of spin on that slider. And, you know, he's just given the Braves a chance every, just about every night out. And really with this offense, that's about all they've asked anybody to do, you know, at this point. So uh, Jared Schuster uh, got knocked around early, went back down to the uh, to Gwinnett and then has come back up. And, you know, he's had his ups and downs as any rookie pitcher will have. But, you know, he's again, he's kept them in games. And, uh, you know, A.J. smith Shaver, who was supposed to pitch tonight, uh, he's a 20 year old started the season in high A, you know, and here he is in the majors in the rotation. So, you know, mm. a lot of, lot of intriguing, a lot of intriguing arms. Um, I think they've had to lean a little heavier into them than what they were expecting to obviously with freed and ride out. And I mean, even Ian Anderson, uh, he's out, out for the season with Tommy John. I think they were, you know, kind of yeah. expecting to see him at some point too. And, um, you know, it's just they've thrown, thrown a lot of guys at, at the problem and, uh, you know, have somehow just kind of been able to keep stringing it all together. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the offense here. It, it's amazing. I'm looking at their numbers here on Baseball Reference. They have one everyday regular with an OPS plus under 100. It's just crazy. And and, and one, you know, so that's uh, Michael Harris, who was, again, one of the top rookies in baseball last year. Uh, and the, the third baseman, Austin Riley, is right at 100. And every time it seems the Phillies play the Braves, Austin Riley does some damage against them. So uh, it's hard to believe that those are maybe the two worst offensive performers for Atlanta this year even Marcelo Zuna has a 110 OPS plus a 797 OPS but I mean this team just pounds home runs I mean you, you've got if I'm if I'm looking at the numbers right you've got uh seven guys in the in the starting lineup with double digit home runs with with more with 12 home runs or, or, or more right now and that's that's just absolutely bonkers and I guess my question is can they keep this up all year like this is this seems the 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 rate at which they're pounding the ball doesn't seem sustainable over the course of a, of a full season is this something that they can keep going this entire lineup acting like this 
I mean, I think this lineup is deep, and it's probably the deepest one that they've had during this five-year run uh, of division titles. But, you know, I, I don't know that they can keep this rate up. I mean, over the last – you know, for the first couple of months, it was just a couple of guys here, a couple of guys there. Michael Harris was struggling, uh, but over the since the start of June, end of May, you know, they this lineup started to click uh, in a lot of ways. Ozzy Albies has come alive from the left side. Eddie Rosario's had an unbelievable uh, last two weeks. He's got something like five home runs in his last seven games. Uh, Michael Harris, one NL player of the week this week, hit over 500. You know, he's he's come back around after a really slow start. And what it's done, I mean, you know, you've got the the usual suspects and uh, Ronald Acuna mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Matt Olson, uh, Sean Murphy's come in and add, just added to the lineup, really. So, you know, I mean, it's it, there's not it, there's not a lot of places to go get outs. I mean, you mentioned Austin Riley. I mean, he's you know he's been in the top 10 in MVP boating the last two seasons and he's <laughs> yeah. kind of been the guy that's not really had the hot streak yet so you know mm-hmm. um I think it's a really really good lineup I don't know that they're going to continue to hit home runs at this rate that they're they're on right now but I do feel like you know they've got to be one of the better team better offenses in the in the in the league it feels like as I've been kind of looking at their schedule lately I think I saw that they've played three teams with a winning record over their last 17 games. Have, have the Braves kind of had an easier schedule of late? No doubt. Um, May was ridiculously hard month for them. Um, you know, they, they played a ton of the NL, of the AL East, um, you know, and everything. And, and in June, it was, it was like there was a series with the Mets and there was this series with the Phillies. But the rest of the schedule was kind of an opportunity for them to you know, take advantage and really put the pressure on the rest of the division. And, uh, you know, obviously the Reds are red hot now, so they've changed – that's changed the calculus a little bit too. This is a – this was an interesting week right here with how well the Phillies and the Reds were both playing. But, yes, this this month, this was an opportunity for them. And, um, you know, they kind of survived May, and I think May was – looking back on it, I think that was the toughest month that they've – their schedule – they'll have the whole season. So, you know, it's one of those things. I mean, you play those bad teams, you got to take advantage of it. And, I mean, it's at, as, as so far, mm-hmm. you know, they've done that. What do you make of the schedule? Uh, the fact that there are far fewer interleague games. The fact that the Braves are coming to Philadelphia for the first time this season, and it's, it's actually closer to late June than it is uh, really to, to, to early June at this point. You know, first series starts on June 20th. First time these teams, only the second series these two teams have played. And then, like I mentioned right at our before we started talking, that this is going to be the only series these teams play again until September when they'll play each other two more series in September. And then then that's it. You know, I mean, I... It's, it feels weird, and I'm not sure that I like the fact that these divisional games have been trimmed down in favor of of interleague games, more games against the American League East, and get those games in against the Tigers and the White Sox. You know, I'm, I'm, I'd like to see this team, these two teams play each other a little bit more, and not be just because the Phillies need head-to-heads in order to get back in the division race if they're going to do it. No, I mean... Um... There's there's some things I like about it and other things I don't and I mean it's it it does seem weird that you know we've waited this long really for the Braves and Phillies to meet I think that's a downside to it I have enjoyed seeing a lot of the teams that we don't normally get to see on a year in year out basis uh, but you know I mean you just think back the last two seasons you know if you get off to a bad start like you said I mean there's just less opportunity less head to head opportunities to 
you know, to, to run down an opponent, you know, in the same, in a lot of the ways. I and mean, we've seen the Braves do that for two straight seasons. This year, they obviously got off to a good start. And, uh, you know, I think it's going to be tough on the Phillies and the Mets just because you just don't have that many opportunities, you know, as far mm-hmm. as it goes. So, you know, I'm, I'm a little, I don't know. I, I think, um, you know, I think I'm going to miss some of those divisional games late in the season and, and whatnot too, but just because, you know, I expect the Phillies and the Mets to, you know, really stock up at the trade deadline. I think it'll still be a good race. But, at, uh, you know, at the same time, I've enjoyed, you know, seeing a lot of these teams that you just don't get to see, you know, before it was, what, three or four seasons before you might you might see Mike Trout come to Atlanta or, uh, you know, something yeah. like that. Yeah, that's a good trade-off. I mean, I know Phillies fans would love to see, you know, Shohei Otani and Mike Trout come to town, as would Atlanta fans. And it's great to see some of those guys from Seattle and, and the other, you know, the other teams that you don't normally get to see all that often. So there, there is that trade-off. I, I, I do I do get that, but I do miss these series against them. I, I, I don't miss series against the Marlins and, and, and Nationals all that much, as much as I like beating up on the Nationals. Those, those games just don't have a whole lot of juice to them anymore. Right. Uh, but these series against the Braves and Mets certainly do do so before we just kind of jump into some of the other teams around the national league what's your sense on the phillies what is your sense on the slow start they keep getting off to year after year and um the fact that they've kicked it into gear here in june and what is the gap as you see it between the phillies and the braves we obviously saw the phillies beat the braves in four games in the division series last year but if you're taking a longer view of things it's pretty clear the braves are a superior team well, I think the Braves have have probably a more overall depth, but I mean, I don't think the gaps that far. I mean, really, I mean, when I look at these, is it standards, a nine? Is it like is it a nine game gap on paper? I guess is what I'm asking. I, I don't think so, um, really. And I mean, I mean, you can go back. to <laughs> This is funny. I've thought about this every day probably since the last time I was on the show with you. I remember, you know, at the end of last year, we're sitting there two weeks to go, and you know, the Braves have run down the Mets and. Uh, um, you know, it, at the time we talked, I mean, there was some question whether Phillies were even going to make the playoffs. You know, yeah. and I can remember, I don't, I don't think I said anything uh, too derogatory, but, you know, two <laughs> weeks later, look how different everything was. I mean, the Phillies look like the best team in, you know, in the National League, and they, they proved that. You know, they got mm-hmm. hot at the right time. So I don't think the gap's that much. I mean, I know the Marlins are having a, a storybook start to this season, but the Phillies are still the team, you know, to me – that's got the firepower in a in a in a series to to you know go head to head with the Braves and uh, you know I think that's the that's why I, this series here I hate that we got a rain out right here because I thought it was a, mm. a pretty good measuring stick you know for both teams honestly and um, yeah you know and I mean they were the two hottest teams well besides Cincinnati but they were two hottest teams you know in the National League coming into this series so um, you know I think it, it's I haven't got to watch the Phillies too much. This mm-hmm. time, I know Trey Turner's better than he's playing. Yeah. And I just feel like, you know, that's a guy, if you get in one of these short series, he can beat you. You know, he, mm-hmm. he can single-handedly beat you. We've seen Bryce Harper do that. You've seen Kyle Schwarber do that. You've, you know, you've got two stud frontline pitchers in Nolan and Wheeler. You know, it, you know I think – I and I think the bullpen. If I'm not mistaken, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think the bullpen's actually pitched a lot. Bullpen's better been good. Of yeah, late bullpen's too. been good. And that mm-hmm. was something yeah. that was always seemed like that was kind of the difference. You know, when it come right mm-hmm. down to it, the Braves bullpen would pull them out in a, a lot of tough spots that, and the Phillies just couldn't couldn't do that. So, you know, I I see these teams as 
pretty similar. I think the Braves might have just a little bit more firepower at this point, but you know, I, as we've seen, anything can happen once you get to. Well, the, I think the big the difference between. Yeah, no, I agree with you, and I, I think the big difference between these two teams right now is simply the power difference. I, I think pitching staff wise, I think the Phillies starters are pitching as well as anybody in, in baseball right now, but they, they just they struggle to put runs on them. When they hit home runs, the Phillies win games. Right. When they don't hit home runs, they they don't hit games, and that sounds really simple and and dumb. But this team goes into stretches where they become a singles machine, and that's kind of what's happened over the last few games. They were pounding the ball in Arizona, and then in Oakland, they reverted back to you know a bunch of slap hitters, and um, it's the Bryce Harper power drain has been has been really eye opening. He's still doing a lot of good things, but has a slugging percentage I think under three hundred in his last twenty games or so. It's just um, the, the the power stroke from a lineup that really. Really every big moment in the playoffs last year virtually was a, a home run of some kind. And so right. um, it's just, it's been frustrating as a, as a Phillies fan to, to watch the offense and to watch Aaron Nola struggle the way he has this year too. Um, give me your thoughts on the Mets. I know you maybe not have seen the Mets uh, a whole lot either, but the fact that they are struggling with the payroll that they have and the expectations put upon them, should we should we have seen this coming? The fact that you know they have these aging pitchers that they gave so much money to, and they they have this lineup that they've paid a lot of money to, but they're they're not performing. Are you surprised at how at how much the Mets have struggled? I'm not as optimistic about the Mets as I was as I am about the Phillies. I feel like the, at the end of the day, the Phillies will be there. You know the Mets. I felt like the Mets overachieved a lot offensively last year. I mean, um, without if Alonzo's not going, I mean, if Alonzo's going, Pete Alonzo's, you know, and if he's if he's hitting and he's hitting with for power, you know, that offense can get by a lot. I think, mm-hmm. but they just don't have the. <clears throat> I don't think they've got the, you know, top to bottom. I don't think they can match, you know, with uh, the, with Philadelphia or Atlanta. In the in the East, and then as you said, I mean that pitching staff's been a been a mess. I mean they've been riddled with injuries, but then you know Scherzer's starting to look, look a little bit more like Scherzer. But you know Justin Verlander's been up and down, was hurt start the season, and I you know I just look at guys Starlin Marte. You know those guys are great players, but they're on the wrong side of thirty now, and you know they're signed to big contracts, and uh, mm-hmm. and I just see them trending trending the wrong way. I mean. Now, I won't be surprised at all if they get it together and you know put a uh, make it respectable again, maybe challenge for a wild card spot. But I just don't think you know as they're as they stand right now, I just don't think they can stay in the race. You know they're going to have to make a move at the at the trade deadline, and uh, you know if there's you know if they keep struggling like this, then you know the move may be to sell, which is something that I can't even imagine. You know cons- after the off season that they had. Yeah, that would be a really difficult decision for Steve Cohen. I'm trying to imagine him doing that. That would be <laughs> that would be that would be a shocker, but it might ultimately be the best thing the best thing for that team. So, um you, we did mention also too. You mentioned the Marlins, the fact that they had been on a roll. They've lost two in a row, thankfully. Finally, they're starting to, you know, realize that, you know, the earth is round and and you know, things you can't live on on magic and and mirrors and and everything for forever. But the the Marlins are are 42 and 33 here as we record this late on Wednesday night. The Cincinnati Reds are in first place in the 
Central at, with an 11-game winning streak. Uh, you've got the, the Diamondbacks leading the West, but now you've got the San Francisco 49ers on a nine-game winning streak. And so my question to you is, of those three surprise teams, the Cincinnati Reds, San Francisco Giants, Miami Marlins, which of those three teams do you think has the most staying power? I'd have to go with the Reds just because they're in the Central. You know, mm. I don't. I think the bar is a lot lower for them, and uh, man, they have a lot of young, exciting players. And and to me, and it, the Braves are going to get a look at them after this Philadelphia series too. We'll get to see them for three games, but you know, I'm I'm intrigued by their young pitching, and uh, you know, in that ballpark, they've got plenty of power. And in the Central, you know, you just don't have that many teams you have to jump over. The Giants surprised me. I really hadn't paid that much attention to them and was looking at standings today, and I thought, wow, you know, where did they come from? Because I didn't really see them, you know, doing this. But, you know, that's a that's a, that's a a franchise that, you know, defies expectations a lot of times. And uh, um, so, yeah, it's uh, I would go Reds first as the biggest surprise, and then, you know, the Giants maybe right behind them. And then the Marlins, you don't think the Marlins can can sustain what they're doing? I don't know. I mean, the thing about it, you know, they've won all those one-run games. And, I mean, it's not unheard of. I can remember the Rangers doing this a few years ago and winning the division. I mean, I don't think you can question the Marlins pitching. But I think it comes back to that offense. You know, Jazz Jazz Chisholm's been hurt. They've done this without him, which is pretty impressive. But he was kind of struggling before that. Yeah, it really is. You know, can Jorge Soler, you know, stay healthy enough? I mean, Braves fans, all Braves fans know – what he can help, how he can help a lineup, you know, but can he stay healthy over the long haul? And, uh, you know, I just don't know if I really believe buy into that offense, you know, against the top teams, but, you know, credit to them, yeah. you know, because their, their young pitching can match just about everybody. And they've done this without Sandy, you know, without Sandy Alcantara looking anything mm-hmm. close to what he was last year. So I probably shouldn't discount yeah. them as much as I do, but, um, you know, uh, they, they're still a negative run differential uh, for the season. I know it's gotten a lot better uh, than it was early on, but, you know, still I think mm-hmm. they've they've got to prove a little bit more in this division. So, yeah, it's been a very weird start to the to the season here in the National League with some of these long winning streaks and some of these surprise teams. That's what that's what kind of makes it fun. And I'm looking over the Giants roster. Like, if you, unless you follow the Giants closely every day, I, I don't think there's a person out there that could name three people in the starting lineup. It's mean, just there there are no household names there. I mean, Brandon Crawford's the only guy that I would probably have been able to guess, and he's got an OPS of six seventy nine. But I mean, like guys like Patrick Bailey, their catcher, is is like a, an eight forty one right. OPS. Uh, Lamonte Wade Jr. as an 878 OPS. Um, you know, Mike Estremski. Most people know Mike Estremski, 88 OPS. Yep. But like J.D. Davis at third base. Uh, Michael Conforto has a team-high 12 home runs uh, for the for the Giants, which is which is just kind of incredible. What comeback story for him. So very weird team. Uh, all three of those teams with lots of holes. I think all three of those teams have more holes uh, than the Phillies do, and frankly, more holes than the Mets do. But uh, it's a long season, still uh, more than half of the season to play out and see if those teams can hang with it. Well, listen, folks, if you want to keep an eye on what's been going on with the Atlanta Braves during the course of the season, because again, we're not going to see the Braves for a good little while until September, make sure that you're reading Battery Power, the SB Nation Brave site, and follow everything Chris Willis is doing by following him on the Twitter machine at Chris underscore Willis. That's Chris with a K, by the way, kids, K-R-I-S underscore Willis. Chris, thanks for coming back on Hitting Season, buddy. Always a pleasure. Hey, thanks for having me. It's always a lot of fun. I appreciate it.
All right, I want to finish up the podcast talking about one of my favorite memories as a Phillies fan, and this goes back 20 years to the 2003 season. Uh, there was a series, uh, the Phillies uh, played against the Red Sox, and and for those of you who were big fans of the team during that 2003 season, Jim Tomey's first season in Philadelphia, you will remember this game. It's the, the Todd Pratt game, of course, you know, the one that um, caused Scott Graham, the Phillies radio broadcaster that day to lose his ever-loving mind, and you could hardly blame him. I wrote about this uh, about this game for the Good Fight uh, on on Wednesday, so uh, you can read about it there and see the highlights of this game because it, it truly was uh, amazing. But this was a four-hour and forty-five minute masterpiece of drama. Can you imagine? I mean, I can't even imagine baseball games going four hours forty-five minutes anymore. We've just totally eliminated that from from the baseball lexicon. Uh, but you had thirty-five thousand five hundred twelve fans inside the soon-to-be-demolished Veterans Stadium watching the Phillies and the Red Sox, a Red Sox team that would go to the American League Championship Series in 2003, lose on the Aaron Boone home run in Game 7, but then the following season in 04 with Curt Schilling on board that team, win the World Series after trailing the Yankees 3 to nothing in the ALCS. So, uh, so many players from that team were at Veterans Stadium for this phenomenal game that took place on June 21st, 2003. I remember watching this game on TV and it was just incredibly riveting. Uh, the Phillies beat the beat the Red Sox 6 to 5 in 13 innings in this game and it, it had all the feeling of a playoff game which if you were a fan of the Phillies in the late 90s and early 2000s, you didn't see a whole lot of that. And so when the Boston Red Sox came to town, it was still kind of new to have a team like the Red Sox come to town. Uh, the TV executives put the game on national TV. It was the National Fox game on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, Boston, the year before, even though they didn't make the playoffs, had won 93 games in 2002. So they were in the midst of becoming this marquee team once again. Um, the Phillies, in the mean, meanwhile, were still trying to find their identity, but they had surprised the baseball world by signing Jim Tomey to that huge mega contract before the start of the 2003 season. And you had a pretty good starting rotation there. You know, you had Vicente Padilla, you had Randy Wolf, you had Kevin Millwood at the time. Uh, you had a number of different pitchers there who could throw the base, throw the baseball a little bit. And it was like, we, I remember during the, the beginning of the season, we said, hey, we got a rotation full of number twos. Like there's just a whole rotation full of number twos. And uh, you had a bunch of established guys in the bullpen, even though the bullpen struggled all year, the names were full of guys that were supposed to be good. And so when this series began, Boston came in 11 games over 500 at 41 and 30. It was a three-game series. The game on Friday night, first game of the series was rained out. So the game on Saturday turned into a two-game series, a Saturday afternoon and a Sunday afternoon game. Uh, Boston started at 41 and 30. The Phils came in four games over 500 at 37 and 33, much the same position that the 2023 Phillies are in right now. And in today's wildcard era, those 03 Phils would have been in a fine position for a wildcard spot. But 20 years ago, there was a little bit of frustration and panic that the team wouldn't quite be good enough to, to stick with this Boston team. But this was kind of a measuring stick series for the Phillies, and this game was nuts. Uh, the Phillies had to navigate a lineup full of Manny Ramirez, Johnny Damon, David Ortiz, Jason Veritek, Nomar Garcia Parra. Garcia Parra went six for six in this game. On paper, the Phillies lineup of Tommy, Bobby Abreu, Mike Lieberthal, Placido Polanco, Polanco, and a very young Pat Burrell and Jimmy Rollins were not really on par with that Boston squad, but the Phillies won both games of this abbreviated two-game series. And 
on this game that we're going to talk about, this uh, this uh, uh, six to five uh, win in thirteen innings. Um, it truly was one of the most memorable games I've ever seen. You had Pedro Martinez in his prime. Led the league in ERA with a 2.22 ERA. Led the league in ERA plus. FIP, WHIP, hits per nine, home runs per nine, strikeouts per nine. He finished third in the American League Cy Young voting. He was outstanding. This was like when he was just at his zenith. And for the Phillies, they had Randy Wolf on the mound. And it was a mismatch on paper. Wolf finished the season with a 4.23 ERA. But uh, at the time of this game, he was uh, had a, an ERA in the low threes. He did make 33 starts, pitched 200 innings, and picked up 16 wins on the season. So Wolf was a fine, like, number low-end three, high-end number four starter. But on this day, Wolf was almost as good as Pedro. He went six and two-thirds innings, uh, gave up just two solo home runs to Todd Walker in the third and the sixth inning. Um, Martinez was even better. Uh, he went seven innings and gave up just a solo home run to Bobby Abreu in the second. So as you go to the bottom of the eighth inning, the Phillies are trailing two to one. Again, you've got this pitcher's duel. It was a really crisply played game. Uh, Turk Wendell, Rail Cormier, Terry Adams, Dan Playsack combined to throw four and a third scoreless innings from, uh, from, from the sixth inning when they relieved uh, Randy Wolf all the way through the 12th inning. Uh, really did a great job here. But trailing 2-1 to one in the bottom of the eighth, you had Boston right-handed reliever Mike Timlin facing Jim Tomey with two outs. And as he has done throughout his Hall of Fame career, Jim Tomey delivered in the, clunch, in the clutch and launched this monster home run deep into the right center field seats, tying the game at two. And here is the immortal Harry Callis, on the call for Phillies Radio. The 1-1 pitch, swing and a towering drive to deep right center field. This ball way out of here. Tremendous home run, Jim Tomey. And this game is tied at two in the bottom half of the eighth inning. Ah. The Harry calls, man, they're just goosebump inducing, man. Anyway, the teams traded scoreless innings then in the 9th, 10th, and 11th innings. But in the 12th, Boston got an RBI triple by Kevin Millar off of Phil's closer, Jose Mesa, to put Boston in front 3-2. to two. So enter the bottom of the 12th inning. The Phillies are down to their final out. And you got Red Sox reliever Jason Scheel on the mound facing Jim Tomey once again with nobody on. And nobody thought Jim Tomey was going to get a fastball to hit. But Shield did something that he absolutely should not have done, and that was give Jim Tomey something to hit, and hit it he did. Here is Scott Graham with the call on Phillies Radio. The payoff pitch to Tomey. Swing and a drive, deep center field. Going back, Damon. He did it. He did it. Home run, Jim Tomey. We're tied at three. He tied it. He did it. Number 17, Jim Tomey. It's a brand new ball game here in the bottom of the 12. That electric homer tied the game at 3-3 once again, sending a delirious fan base into the 13th inning. Now, despite Tommy's heroics, it appeared Boston would in the end win the day. In his second inning of work, Jose Mesa struck out Trot Nixon and Freddie Sanchez to start the 13th, but then allowed a two-out single to Johnny Damon, an RBI double to Walker, and an RBI single to Garcia Parra, his sixth hit on the day, in order to, and then gave the, the Boston Red Sox a 5-3 to three lead heading into the bottom of the 13th. Hoped seemed lost, but the Phillies had a little bit of magic left. Facing Shield for a second inning, Abreu led off the 13th with a walk, 
Lieberthal was retired on a fly ball to right, but after defensive indifference allowed Abreu to take second, David Bell laced in a, a one-out RBI double to center, making, making it a 5-4 to four game. And now you've got the tying run in scoring position. So manager Grady Little goes out and replaces Shield with Rudy Sienez to face Todd Pratt in his second go-around as the Phil's backup catcher. He was the backup to Darren Dalton in 1993. Todd Pratt was the last man on the bench, and what followed next is etched forever in Philly's history. Scott Graham here with the legendary call. Now the stretch. 1-0 pitch. Hit hard to deep center field. Damon going back at the track. Looks up. It's gone. It's gone. Put this one in the late column for the fighting Bills. Todd Pratt won it. He won it. Dead center field home run. They're going crazy. They're in Veterans Stadium. Unbelievable. Todd Pratt coming off the bench, the last play the Phillies had left. Took one pitch from Rudy Sanchez down in the dirt and said, let's go home, boys. We got another game tomorrow. 6-5, the final Phillies win it. What a game. Pratt's home run was certainly a memory maker, but Scott Graham's call was just as big a memory maker. It's kind of shocking because Graham never made calls like that, but he must have just been really amped for this series because he was he was on fire in this game. And make no mistake, this was an electric game. This was an insane game. It had playoff intensity, which is just not something we were used to in Philadelphia at that time. But it is it was such an iconic call that the Phillies made a bottle opener that they gave away, I think, the following season uh, to commemorate the call. It was just bizarre, and I know a lot of people who had it. And then riding high off that win, the Phillies swept the series. They won the following day on Sunday 5 to nothing behind Brett Myers. Uh, they lost to the Braves in the, the game after that and then won seven in a row. It looked like the Phillies were on their way, but as we all remember from that 2003 season, it was not to be. They fell apart in the last week and a half of the season, lost six in a row, seven of their final eight, and uh, missed out on a chance to go to the playoffs, falling five games behind the Marlins in the wild card race. They finished 86 and 76, and under the current rules, the 2003 Phillies would have been the third wild card. They would have made the playoffs just like the 2023 Phillies did. As a matter of fact, the end of the 2003 season was not too dissimilar from the 2023 season. Some similarities and some parallels between these two teams in terms of how they started, how they played, where they were in June of 03, and where they are in June of 2023. The only difference was Major League Baseball much stingier in the amount of playoff spots that they were handing out to teams uh, than they are now. And certainly the Phillies of 2022 benefited from that generosity. So just a few months after that game, Veteran Stadium would be torn to shreds, but I do believe that this was the last great Phillies game ever played at that beautiful, old, decrepit stadium that I saw so many baseball games in during my youth. 20 years ago today, I do believe the Todd Pratt game against the Boston Red Sox was the last great Phillies game ever played at Veteran Stadium. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this edition of Hit and Season. My thanks to Chris Willis once again for popping on the podcast, and Folks, if you haven't done so already, I would love for you to go over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star rating and a review of the uh, of Hit and Season. would love to hear what you have to say about the show. would really help us out a lot if you would go and do that, if you haven't already. And even if you haven't done it in a while, we'd love to hear back from you. 
and let us know if you still think it's a five-star show and, and what's what you think about the podcast. Also, our Hit and Season Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash hit and season for all kinds of bonus material there. want to also just encourage you to check out billypen.com every day, and you can find everything we're doing on our landing page there at billypen.com slash hit and season. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time right here on Hit and Season.